Hey everybody, uh, this isn't something we usually do, but just to say, quick note before this episode, it's a bit gnarly. Uh, we talk about some kind of uncomfortable topics, um, so if that's not something you're into, if you don't really want to hear um, us talk about kind of the gross exploitation um, and mass killings and genocide of basically an entire continent, the continent, um, two continents I suppose, North and South America, um, then maybe uh, set this one out. Don't listen to this episode. Uh, it's not, it's, you know, I don't know. It's not great. It's a sad topic, but we figured, you know, we kind of wanted to do something like this. So just to say, just a warning. Um, all right. See you on the other side. Very few soldiers with them, and yeah. maybe it's just a technological thing, right? Like, this is, you they, know, what they just had. The, they just had technological means that the. the... Well, that's the thing. Uh, you ever read any Jared Diamond? No. He's like you have to watch his National Geographic dumbass special when you're in school in America. It's Guns, Germs, and Steel is the name of it, and honestly, I. I don't know. Jared Diamond, I'm not the biggest fan because he is pretty bourgeois, but, like, his whole idea is that, like, you know, he's making a quote-unquote materialist argument for why that exactly what you're saying was able to happen, why were, like, Cortez and a couple hundred guys, you know, able to just decimate these empires. And he says it's because of guns, right, germs, and steel. And then he also says that, like, it's fear, like, how do you quantify that? But mainly it's the guns, it's the germs, and the steel, and that if you have those things and the other people don't, you know, there you go. What are you going to do? Obviously, Jared Diamond doesn't take into account, like, anything about, like, modes of production or economic theory or anything like that, but still interesting. There's an essay we could read called The Arrow of Disease. Yeah, so there you go. Good. Yeah. I'm just yeah. going to fix this thing. Are you recording this? I am. I've, okay. I've started... I just didn't oh want to... Uh, this uh, Fixing this thing Jack. is going to make a lot of noise. So <laughs> I was like, I don't want to cut Jack off with all of Hello. All with my mic. <laughs> okay. He might want this to be a cold open or something. <laughs> I, we've started doing the cold opening. We're not a cold open, but... It's not a proper cold open, we've is it? we started just talking. Oh, I see. This We have started. Yes. We started yes. doing it. <clears throat> what was I going to say to you? Last week... The sound levels were just perfect. On um, on the on the on the on not the, on the baseball on the so. McNair one. No, on the no. McNair one. On yes. the McNair one, it was Oof. like they, it was just. Oof. Ooh, it was perfect. It was that perfect. was episode fifty. Oof, we got it. Forty nine, but yeah, forty nine. <laughs> damn it. Oh, this is fifty. This is fifty. Happy fifty, 50 episodes. Fifty man. whole episodes. That's actually insane. Um, Jesus Christ. We've got something huge planned for 52 for the one-year special. It's going to be massive. massive. We got Obama coming on. I think <laughs> I made that joke last time, but you know, what are you going to do? Um, hmm. Mm, yeah. Mm. Welcome. I, yeah, yeah, welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome, yeah. Okay. I mean, we never do. We could start. We well, could start doing a kind of intro. I was going to say. Welcome gonna... to the show. Oh, no, we do cold open. <laughs> Yo, so what's we're... up, everybody? It's your boy. <laughs> Do people do that on podcasts? I don't think so. 
Um, I was going to say it's almost broad bean season again, Dan. And I've been putting off planting broad beans. I've been putting off planting garlic. Is it because you're just not willing to admit the season is here? Yeah, actually, the yeah. time is nigh. Well, then I'd have to go. It's walk basically and get some winter. Cloth. Yeah. Oh, you'd yeah, actually it's... have to go up to the allotment and do some work. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also just go and get some <laughs> broad beans. Yeah, some, some <laughs> no, I've saved. I've saved uh, broad beans to plant. Nice. That I yeah I harvested and dried and hopefully mm. they'll work. Mm. So. We'll see. See, he so didn't eat them all like some kind of glutton. <laughs> some kind of glutton, yeah, yeah uh-huh, exactly. Uh-huh. I only really figured out one thing to do with broad beans, and that was just like... Fry them up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're good. Mm. That's what you're going to do. Um, all right, well, we're back again. Post-baseball episode. Yeah. You'll be happy enjoyed. to know, Dan. Oh, tell me about the baseball. Last night, AL how, how Wild Card do? Series. Yeah. Gi- Giants haven't started playing yet. Uh. Um, <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Um, you mean it was the most exciting night in baseball and the Giants were playing? Hmm. Interesting, intriguing. Hmm. No, listen, was... no, I don't know anything about baseball, but I am adopting the Giants as my team just to piss Jack off. Yeah, or in an effort Sick. to like rile Jack a little bit. Sick. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, uh, Yankees played the Red Sox last night. Nice. Yankees lost, right. which we kind of love to see. Yeah. And I called the score. The night before, I texted my dad and my brother and I said, uh, uh, 6-2. Red Sox, Garrett Cole's going to give up a lot of runs. And, like, I think I said he was going to give up, like, four runs and three innings. He gave up three runs and two innings. So that wasn't exactly perfect, but, hey, I called the score. Uh-huh, and I'm uh-huh, calling uh-huh. tonight's score. And did you, like, uh, Dane in from looking at tea leaves or something? Or? I was just kind of like, Garrett Cole isn't clutch, and he kind of sucks, and I think the Red Sox uh-huh, are going to win. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> no, like, it just seems like it's going to So he has some wisdom. Has some wisdom. And tonight, I'm betting... Because it's the Dodgers on tonight in a one-game elimination game. By the time this comes out, yeah, everybody will happened. be know. Everybody will yeah. know. I'm calling it nine eight Dodgers in an in extra innings. So there you go. Okay, that's my call. So hundred uh, percent so far in the playoffs. Uh-huh. There you go. Yeah, go listen to our <laughs> baseball episode, everybody. It's wow, our baseball episode. We finally did one. Very exciting. Uh, what are the playoffs? The playoffs aren't the postseason, right? The playoffs are. Oh, yeah, they're the postseason. Okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> so. Very exciting. Oh, right. It's stupid because the Dodgers are like the second best team in baseball and they have to play a one game elimination game. So it's like, oh, those 162 games didn't really matter. Doesn't really matter at all. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway. We, could, we could do hours of Jack <laughs> teaches like, down baseball. <laughs> I, well, I'm down for it, but I'm not sure whether, <laughs> put, yeah, putting out our. our yeah. Our communist <laughs> podcast under the guise of, well, putting out our baseball podcast yeah, under the guise, of, the guise of being a communist one. <laughs> Oh, not going to fly for very long, I don't think. You know, we can talk that relates to communism. Um, Ayatsi, who we talked about recently, voted to strike. They had like 98% voter turnout. 99.3% of everybody in the union voted to strike. Voted to strike and immediately the producers were like, okay, let's talk. (laughs) So there you go, folks. It works. What do you know? Nice, 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 nice. Mm. So yeah, shout out to them, I guess. Yeah. Congratulations. Well done, folks. It works. Yeah. I mean, potentially, it's just the producers waiting until all their, like, they're done shooting for the season. So, (laughs) yeah, so, you know, whatever. I don't know. But, yeah, look at that. It works, folks. Collective action, I guess. So, yeah, well done. Well done, everybody. Mm. Well, Dan, we had a bit of a depressing, depressing read this week. I, I just, I think we should say, we haven't really ever done anything... I don't know, disturbing, I guess. Is that the right word? We haven't ever done anything that's like emotionally really super hard to deal with. We watched a 
you know, some of the Devil's Chessboard stuff was gnarly. Patrice Lumumba, all those stories were gnarly. Um, the, some of the McNamara stuff was gnarly. But, um, yeah, wow, we went into it this week. Yeah. Bit of a bummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sad. Sad. Almost horrific beyond imagining. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it is. I right. mean, I think the numbers that get thrown out in this book, you cannot imagine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, everybody. Hey, cool. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. We Buckle up. Buckle up, because we read one chapter again this week. <laughs> Um, we, and an introduction. And an introduction. <laughs> and kind of a preface. Um, this week, Dan, we read the first chapter of Open Veins of Latin America, Five Centuries of Pillage of a Continent by Eduardo Galeano. Um, part one, Mankind's Poverty as a Consequence of the Wealth of the Land, Chapter One, Lust for Gold, Lust for Silver. Kind of sums it up. Yeah. Um, this book was written in the 70s, I believe. Uh, 1971, this copy came out in 1973. Um, and it is just that. It is. Uh, it was published by Monthly, Monthly Review, so it is a lefty book, but it is uh, a chronicling of the colonization and continued exploitation of Latin America. And this week we read the chapter that was basically the early history. It's kind of from colonization until... Uh, the emergence of capitalism. Um, and I'm really interested to talk about this, partly because we haven't really gotten into a lot of like concrete examples of th- the suffering that comes along with capitalism uh, to kind of, you know, edge back a bit, I guess, from the theory and kind of be like, well, how does this actually affect people's lives, the majority of people on the planet? Um, and also because we were just talking off mic um, about how this relates and perhaps can kind of conflict conflict with Alan Meekson's Wood Origin of Capitalism stuff that we've read. Um, but before you get to all of that, what'd you think? Um, I thought it was very good. Mm. I thought it was, um, as you say, desperately saddening. Um, as the title of the book implies, it is a, uh, history, a chronicling of the gross levels of extraction that have come or been inflicted upon South America and all of the funneling of the resources out of those areas, out of that part of the world to the West of Europe, to Europe and to later into America um, to fill the coffers of first European kings and princes and uh, later the sort of like ravenous desires of, um, I don't know, capitalists. Yeah, capitalists, imperialists. Robert McNamara's. Oh, get the oh, name God. drop. Yeah, we get, yeah, it's all the same effing people, isn't it? It's just like, <laughs> God damn it. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it was very good. And um, a sort of very uh, readable, very visceral, very mm. um, uh, sort of quotation-filled, um, narrative-rich and... Uh, just very gritty telling of the history kind of thing yeah um with with uh replete with sort of statistics and numbers that sort of like uh, would make one weep if they weren't so disbelievable yeah exactly exactly like literally unbelievable um and it's interesting because i think this is pretty close to maybe as close as you're going to get perhaps to a history of this of this period 
that is really not trying to pull any punches. It's really not trying to like apologize for anything. It, this isn't like the American textbook stuff where it's like, hey, you know, some bad stuff happened, right? But everything's all okay. He has no real interest in kind of uh, uh, dumbing down numbers um, or, or kind of shying away from any of the atrocities that happened. Um, to give one example, he says that there was one mine a mountain called Cerro Rico in Potosi in uh, Bolivia, where uh, he says that over three centuries, eight million people died in the mine. And it's just like, it's it's just like, what are you supposed to do with that number? It's like a number larger than the Holocaust for one silver mine. And it's like, where's all that silver? It's just got to still be in circulation, still be being traded, still being bought and sold. And yeah, it's just like, what are you supposed to do with that number? Mm-hmm. It's, it is stunning. It's just, you know. And this 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 part of the book was just rife with stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah when when you what's laid out very starkly is the reality of life in this part of the world prior fourteen ninety two and the sort of like the initial process of colonization. Comparing that to the existence of the the natives, at least those ones that weren't killed in the sort of various genocidal wars that happened or um, the mass dyings that were the result of the all of the diseases that were introduced to this part of the world. Um, all the people who went on to survive that, who like once would have contributed to this incredibly rich culture that was... Um, had within it incredibly skilled sort of like artisans and astronomers and mm. the like there's there's one section of this basically which is which is um uh an idea that could be applied to any point of history really any point of capitalist or even pre-capitalist history but in this one it's particularly stark where it's like this all of the richness of these civilizations that were the result of all of the various contributions that were made to them by the people that were involved and those people that were then just sort of funneled into this sort of like death machine that was yeah. um, the, the particular silver mining and in, in, in Portugal, the gold mining um, that sort of like was just like extracted from the country and funneled into the coffers of Spain and Portuguese kings. Yeah. Chuds. Yeah. Um, it's Yeah. The image that I couldn't get out of my head was just the idea of this like incredibly rich and complex society that had just been like crushed into one amorphous thing and then fed through yeah. this sort of like human meat grinding process of mining that was just like just killed people, as you say, by the millions. Yeah, by the millions, yeah. Um there is one point when um, the author is just, I think he's discussing the mercury mines because I think mercury was incorporated into the refining of, of silver, silver right? Yeah. And one of the things that made the silver mining, pro- well, exacerbated the horrors of the silver mining that happened in South America in the sort of like, I guess we're talking 17th and 18th centuries um, and earlier was this new process of refining silver that came about, uh, required mercury as a process, but there were also mercury mines in South America. <laughs> and um, I think they were saying the average lifespan was like four years for somebody yeah. who was working in the mercury mines, just because like, obviously mercury is incredibly poisonous um, and was just sort of reducing people. Um, to like trembling, yeah, hairless, yeah, yeah. just like, yeah. yeah. 
destitute. I mean, yeah, it's 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 all obviously pretty chilling. Um, and it's interesting because, like, when you learn about this in American schools, this period, you learn about, like, Cortez and how gnarly it was when they went in and just slaughtered everybody uh, in, you know, wherever the conquistadors went, basically, in every capital. You don't you don't learn too much about, like, what happened after that because you're kind of just told it all happened at once. Everybody died. Get over it. And then, you know, there was, like, this empire that was formed. Um, you don't hear too much about the mercury mines or the 8 million people who died at the base of this enormous mountain. Um, I'm interested, actually, to kind of know, this is a question I've asked you before, but, like, how you're taught about, like, American, the colonization of the Americas in British schools. Do you, do you learn about it too much, or do you mainly learn about the United I, States? I think it, I was taught about it not at all. Really? Yeah. Jesus. Now, maybe, it, I think we've talked about, like, my experience of... Um, being taught history in British schools before. Mm. Um, and so much of it, particularly like the, um, what we do is like GCSE and A-level history um, is very topic specific, right? So like oh, you, sure. le- you, you, you learn only certain periods of history mm. and then the exams are on those certain periods of history kind of thing. Um, so I did lo- learn a lot more about um, the colonization of North America than I did South America. Gotcha. I don't know whether anybody's taught that, but it's certainly not part of um, early years general history education in a way that I, I suppose it's probably more. I don't know. I, I guess what I'm get, what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that it is more common in the U.S. than sure. it is. Yeah, here. yeah, and mainly I suppose I'm coming. But is it just a kind of like hooray Columbus, Columbus Day, and like... yeah, nowadays it is a bit more like. Okay, Columbus was kind of personally responsible for the deaths of like a lot of the people on many Caribbean islands that they just don't exist. The Taino, they don't exist anymore, kind of just because of Columbus. You do learn a bit about that. But as well, you also learn about Spanish colonization because I went to school in California and California was part of the Spanish Empire for obviously a really, really long time. Um, And there's the mission system, which is pretty messed up in its own right, but it was basically just churches slash cattle ranches that were set up all along the Californian coast to claim that they were using all of the land so that Spain could just have the land. But the, the, obviously the stories of exploitation and murder and torture and stuff that comes out of the missions. Hey, surprise, surprise, the Catholic Church did something weird. Um, it's, it's just barbaric. And so you kind of learn about it more from that angle. But I suppose kind of what my point is, is that you never learn about what happened after the initial conquest. Because you do learn about the guns and the germs and the steel and the slaughter and the poison blankets and everything like that, but you don't really learn about what happened to these people yeah. after that and what is continuing to happen to them now. And it sounds like what you're taught is a very sort of like abstract version of the history as a kind of like, oh, these sort of technologically superior European colonizers yeah. just happened to exterminate <laughs> yeah. sort of like... Um, Continents. Sort of the, yeah, <laughs> it's an entire continent yeah. of persons. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess the story is told, perhaps, correct me if I'm wrong, but perhaps the story is told in terms of this sort of asymmetry of technology or this yes. sort of clashing of civilizations, I suppose. And I guess it's not told, I don't know how much it's told in the context of like, because in this, um, a lot of it is put in the context of like European holy war that's happened at the same time mm, and yeah. how like th- this in some ways was a continuation of the expansion or the purification of Christendom to some extent, that maybe that's that's to some extent what the conquistadors mm. were doing. I mean, obviously they they um, 
were spreading Christianity or in, sort of like inspired by yeah. um, Christianity. It's interesting that like this um, this very early phase, right? The sort of like the initial discovery or the kind of like discovery by the Western Europeans of um, the Americas mm. in 1492 sort of coincides with the reunification of Spain and the early sort of like yeah. purging, well, the sort of like the final um, expulsion of um, Muslims from southern Spain, but then also it also coincides with the massive um, expulsion and killing of the Jewish population of mm. Spain, and it also coincides with the um, the Inquisition, of which um, the sort of Spanish uh, royal family were patrons mm-hmm. um and so it's sort of like i guess this, i don't know whether you feel it was the same way the book seemed to be presenting that the discovery and what happened in south america can be put in the context of those other kind of like um, mm. religious wars and genocides and uh, persecutions kind of thing I think on they, a much more horrific scale of course yeah but like i don't know yeah well i mean i think i think they'd have to be if for no other reason than like Cortez and Cabrillo and all of these guys had Catholic priests with them yeah. all the time, just for no other reason to be like, hey, bless what we're doing, because yeah, it's pretty yeah, bad, yeah, yeah. you know? And like, maybe if we say that we gave them a cross or two, it'll make us out to be better people. Yeah. Yeah, I guess one of the reasons why I was thinking about it in terms of like, maybe it's taught as this very kind of like, um, uh, almost mechanistic process, it's just sort of history happening kind of thing. Yeah. Is that it's, it prevents you from seeing, as you were saying, that like this, um, I guess, mass killing or genocide or whatever word you want to put to it was something that happened again and again and again, year after year after year mm. for centuries, basically. Yeah. And almost up to the present day. I mean, you, one only has to look at like, I mean... Um, hopefully we read more of this book and hopefully we're introduced to it, but I've come across it in other places and we know about it now, how like, uh, quote unquote, like Indian populations, like the native South mm-hmm. American populations, still are treated as like yeah. the lowest class citizens in, um, a semi arbitrary distinction in some cases. Well, well, I mean, yeah, we're talking about hundreds of years of like, yeah, well, and uh, you, I, yeah, I mean, I just want to go back to what you're saying. Cause it is taught as like a mechanistic process of history, but it's also taught, it was what you're saying is like an event, a singular uh-huh. event. They came over, the bad thing happened, the Band-Aid was ripped off. What, the, you know, these cultures were never going to meet. This was never going to happen. A lot was just out of these people's hands. And sure, there were some bad actors, Cortez and all these people in Columbus, but like, you know, we got past it and that's done mm-hmm. and it's over. Mm-hmm. And this and book... Most of the killing was just the disease and what can you do exactly. about that? And, and uh, okay, yeah, and then they'll be like, okay, sir, there were some examples. But hey, how do you intentionally wipe out all a continent of people? Fairly easily, from, yeah. it's, it seems. <laughs> um, but yeah, th- I think the point of this book is to put all of that in context, in its historical context, but then also to dr- draw a straight line to today, today meaning 50 years ago, um, but of course still to this day, and to make the colonization and pillage and exploitation of the Americas not just something that happened then, but that is continuing to happen now mm-hmm. on many levels, right? Because obviously there's the economic periphery and core, et cetera, et cetera. But also, as you're saying, the continued exploitation of native populations, of Indian populations, of um, some of the worst uh, acts of genocide in Guatemala, for one example, were against native populations who were accused of being 
leftists during the American backed uh, um, uh, di- various dictatorships. And you know, it's kind of just somebody to pick on, but it's also, you know, why are these people being picked on? Because they're the people who have the most to lose and the people who perhaps are taking action or whatever. Um, so yeah, historical context. It's pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. I, I want to read one quick quote um, from this book. This is the end of the introduction, and this kind of sums up what he's trying to do with this book. Um, gnarly, I'll say that. Maybe we should have said at the beginning of this episode, this was gnarly. This is going to be a gnarly episode. <laughs> if we have, Sorry. Yeah, if we have a it across. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be gnarly. Yeah. Um, so he basically says, the ghosts of all the revolutions that have been strangled or betrayed through Latin America's tortured history emerge in these new experiments. As if the present has been foreseen and begotten by the contradictions of the past, history is a prophet who looks back. Because of what was and against what was, it announces what will be. And so this book, which seeks to chronicle our despoilation, (laughs) goddammit, and at the same time explain how the current mechanisms of plunder operate, will present in close proximity the caraveled conquistadors and the jet-propelled technocrats, Hernan Cortez and the Marines, the agents of the Spanish crown and the international monetary fund missions, the dividends from the slave trade and the profits of General Motors. It's just like, God damn it, there you go, dude. Um, I, I, not much to say after that. It is, it is pretty gnarly, and I mean, it is pretty like... Uh, I know I know he's been canceled for uh, since ages long past, but Louis C.K. has this kind of very cringy bit where he talks about how, you know, to exist in kind of modern age is to kind of be a little bit evil because with the money that you could be using to, like, feed a number of people, you buy a car, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, whatever, Louis C.K., right, whatever. But it's that's kind of like something similar that's going on when you read this book is it's just like, okay, everything's still implicit and, you know, we like to put this history behind us, but... It's not to say that we are complicit, but the current economic mode is completely complicit in the continued exploitation and suffering of these people, and it's never stopped. Mm-hmm. I suppose mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, the the, the uh, as we've already said, the one objective of this book is to demonstrate a continuity, and um, for doing that, it is to be lauded because it is something that I guess we can quite often forget. You know, like yeah. Um, I mean, I yeah. I guess I was about to say what one does about the the sins of the past. I don't know mm. reparations. I guess yeah. But if that's yeah. even what's good enough or what's wanted, but yeah. um, also or, perhaps socialism. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I was going to say what Cliff said. What Cliff said that Kropotkin said about <laughs> what are you going to do with your life? You're going to be a doctor, you asshole. Fight the actual disease. Be a socialist. So you know that's what you could do, I suppose. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Cliff said that Kropotkin said that Che Guevara said yeah yeah exactly the guy from the t-shirt said um, well in the introduction he brings up one particularly ghoulish uh, uh, manifestation of uh, current relations that the core has with the periphery I suppose you could say and specifically with Latin America although this type of thing happens in Africa this type of thing happens all over the place and it involves our good friend Robert McNamara um, this is again pretty gnarly so you know just Fair warning. Um, But he's basically, he brings up the example of how, almost how ideology plays a role in, like, in blaming the continued uh, poverty of Latin America on its inhabitants. And how one of the main ways that this happens is through blaming the poverty on uh, the proclivity of these people to reproduce, which is just like such a disgusting sentence to even say. 
But he brings up how Robert McNamara and all of these ghouls uh, said, well, if only these people would stop having kids, then they wouldn't be so poor. You know, these gosh darn Catholics or whatever. McNamara might have been a Catholic, I don't know. But um, suffice it to say that over the years, there have been various attempts to do the humane thing, quote unquote, and introduce birth control devices to these countries as kind of like a, a guise for what's really exploiting these people, which is a you know international system of production for profit. Um and blame it, I guess, just on these uh, people who keep having kids. And that kind of, that is like something that he uses to frame the book um, and sets up the moon, I suppose you could say, in a very depressing, concrete example of how these things still function, right? And yeah, we were laughing because it's like you hear that this, you know, the goddamn Gates Foundation doing this in Africa, but it's like, you know, like this does continue <laughs> to happen. Like, not yeah, implausible. Exactly, yeah. God, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I'm pleased you bring that up as like a... A general narrative that we're exposed to all the time, or we that ha- that comes and goes throughout history, kind of thing. Like, because um, you, you, you're right. Like, I was thinking about it in this context, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of how that argument is also applied to Africa in a lot of ways. Right, mm. this ballooning population and um, the people in Africa, people in South America, are adding to and expounding, or what, not expanding, like mm. um, contributing to. <laughs> their own uh poverty yeah and and i guess in various ways it is their choice yeah and it's not something that's being inflicted upon them like they're at fault yeah and i mean like you hear it i mean i mean like i guess i i guess it's so um obvious an example that sort of tried to say i don't know but like you hear it from this government in this country now yeah of course of course if we like um if people don't want to lose the 20 pound uplift that's currently been given as part of like the state's uh, social security for the unemployed and the underemployed they should just go out and get other jobs yeah because clearly if they're not getting more better playing jobs they're just choosing poverty that's the yeah. argument they keep trotting out and we can't like encourage them to choose poverty so yeah um, we can't incentivize this choice, you know? Like, it's tw- it's 20th and 21st century phrenology is literally what it is. Yeah. It's just a way of being like, ha, that's not my fault. Look at them having kids and living a normal life. Yeah. And, and obviously it's the myth of overpopulation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the, <laughs> I got very confused reading through this section of the introduction because the author goes on for so long about all of these people who are expanding <laughs> this argument that there is this sort of population crunch coming and the... There is this population time bomb going on and that South America is going to reach a point of crisis where the population mm. is so young that it sort of like can't be supported in some way. Um, I almost thought that the author was actually expounded his argument. Yeah. He went on so long about it. Um, but then, of course, he does get to the obvious counterexample, which is like... I mean, I guess the obvious, uh, obvious argument, the argument that he's making is that if the populations of these countries were allowed to administer their own economies without these sort of vulture capitalists coming in, um, they would be able to supply all the things that they need kind of thing. Mm. Um, The populations of these countries are so much smaller relative to their landmass than the populations of sort of like all Western European countries kind of thing. And it's just they're not allowed to support the population that they have, not to mention their future population, off of their own domestic economies because their own domestic Barely. economies are so crippled by yeah. um, the 
the sort of extractive process that's happening, the requirement to grow or produce things for foreign markets rather than your own, yeah. the vast amounts of land that are owned by whatever, like the banana, the, company. the fruit company, whatever it is, United fruit, fruit Company, or whatever. Yeah. Like, well, know. it's this. I mean, the main point of this chapter, right, is that the inhabitants of Latin America have since since Columbus been prisoners of their own wealth. And it, it speaks to this just like knuckle-dragging contradiction that you hear constantly trotted out, no matter where it is, whether it's in Africa or Latin America or, you know, anywhere that's constantly exploited, which is, um, look how poor these people are. What a bummer. But then also like, wow, look how wealthy this land is. You know what I mean? And so it's like, you can't square that in your mind in any kind of capitalist sense. So really what he's saying is like, going back as far as like the days of Potosi or the days of like, you know, when gold and silver were what was being extracted, they were prisoners of their wealth because they had too much wealth and they were just constantly being exploited. And today, you know, he says it's iron, but it's also now it's manufacturing. Um, And so it has nothing to do with like, what a poor continent, what a horrible place to live. Wow, so unlucky these people. Or even like, you know, wow, if only they'd work harder. Uh, he's really saying you can only pin the blame one place, and that's uh, exploitation, imperialism, and capitalism, uh, which, hey, weirdly enough, all go together very nicely. Um, he also makes the point that he says very recently in 1968, but of course this bullshit is still going on, um, uh, what native what native populations there were left in Brazil were constantly being strafed by machine gun fire from helicopters or given arsenic, insult, or uh, just outright just murdered to get them off their land. He says that, what was the example he gave? Uh, the Castelo Branco dictatorship. The director of the Indian Protection Service, named by the Castelo Branco dictatorship, uh, was accused with proof of committing 42 different kinds of crimes against the Indians. The scandal broke in 1968, which would have been four years before the book was published. Um, and of course, this stuff is still going on. So his point there is that, like, yes, they're all prisoners of their wealth. Nothing really has changed, but, like, literally nothing has changed. You hear about the horror stories of the smallpox blankets in the United States. It's still going on. That mm-hmm. thing still happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so, in some ways... It, that idea of like the person who is there ostensibly to protect and preserve those Indian populations in the Amazon is actually their chief sort of like yeah. prosecutor or chiefly responsible for their extermination or at least tacitly involved. Mm. Um, in some ways, you can draw a line all the way back to like the Pope in 1490, mm-hmm. whatever, saying that the populations of South America are like, um, are like members of christendom and should be treated as such and like yeah oh of course are human beings yeah and then that goes on to have contribute nothing to like um protecting them from utterly inhuman yeah um, exploitation of which the representatives of the church were there only as you say only but to vindicate yeah It's yeah. Well, I mean, surprise, surprise. Hey, where did a lot of this gold wind up? In the basement of the Vatican. (laughs) It's it's so disgusting that it's like I heard somewhere that in like St. Peter's Basilica or whatever. Christ. (laughs) Or in the the bank account of a banking family with the funny name the Fuggers, which made me laugh. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, I I guess this when we were talking right before this, the thing that really interested us was this idea that came up in here of um, how the exploitation of the Americas affected the development of England. 
and the, the development of capitalism as well. Um, because this is a really interesting idea, right? Where it's like capitalism did not exist when the disco- quote unquote discovery of the Americas took place, when the initial exploitation took place and it wouldn't exist on a global scale for quite some time after that, right? Obviously. Um, but the interesting thing about this book is that while Galliano makes the point that like this exploitation had a lot to do with the development of capitalism, he's kind of just like, but the conditions on the ground for the exploited didn't change, right? Which is a really, really interesting idea and one that I think I'm kind of still grappling with. But I think we should kind of start to talk about the ideas that come up in this of the origin of capitalism versus the ideas that we were talking about before with the Elemixons would. Um, because here it's... He quotes the Marx quote, which I should honestly probably just read really quick. In chapter three of the first volume of Capital, Marx says, The discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the Aboriginal peoples, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist productions. These idyllic proceedings are the chief momenta of primitive accumulation. And Dan, you brought up a really good point, which perhaps you could speak to, about this the difference of the ideas of the literal primitive accumulation, well, not literal, but like more literal, of the primitive accumulation that Galliano is talking about here, which is just like accumulating a lot of money, versus the idea of the primitive accumulation that Ellen Meeks and Wood talks about, and I suppose like kind of more the Brenner thesis talks about, where it's like, here, Galliano is talking about the primitive accumulation, perhaps in Spain and in Portugal, and how that then affected England. Whereas something that's missing from this book is the Elmixon's what idea? Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways you could probably attribute to Galliano um, an idea, or attribute to his ideas what um, Mixon's Wood calls the commercialization model. Right? He's not really following the sort of like the Brenner idea that capitalism came about as a change in social relations in um, in England. It's more of a kind of like, at a certain level of capital accumulation, i.e. The, the accumulation of vast sums of wealth, capitalism becomes possible at a certain point. So it's much more one of these arguments whereby history is on this trajectory toward capitalism and when certain thresholds are crossed capitalism becomes um, inevitable or impossible to deny, Mm -hmm. what have you. Um, Mixon's Wood makes quite a lot about, um, makes a lot of Marx's discussions of this quote-unquote so-called primitive accumulation. Um, And I think to some extent, to, to some people, Primitive accumulation means simply that, something what we were just describing. Like, you have to accumulate a sufficiently large pot of capital before you can then begin to invest it and behave in capitalist ways. Um, And that definition of primitive accumulation, I think, is much better attributed to people like Adam Smith than it is to Mm. Karl Marx, although Marx is often mistaken for having that understanding. Wait, Marx is misunderstood? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And the way Meekson's Wood presents it is that what Marx really means by primitive accumulation is the kind of like imposition of capitalist social relations of which the accumulation, say, say for example, like British, the enclosure that happened in England, right? 
is a kind of accumulation in the sense that the capitalists were grabbing land so they could use it in different ways, in new capitalist ways. But it was only only happening in tandem or as a supplement or as something additional to a change in social relations that had already happened. Um, so through Brenner and Woods' interpretation of Marx, primitive accumulation is or the accumulation of capital as inputs to the capitalist mode of production is something that's secondary to a change in social relations that's already happened. Mm-hmm. Um Galeano does a lot does a lot of work of criticizing the Spanish in particular and the Portuguese as well for accumulating these vast sums of capital and then not <laughs> acting like capitalists. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like he's making a moral critique. Mm. I mean it, it, like it's quite easy to pour moral scorn upon yeah. the aristocratic class of <laughs> I mean I guess any country but Spain and Portugal <laughs> in particular and the way they're presented and, and and also like the various ruling classes of these um uh various imperial cities in South America like mm. Potosi, Potosi yeah, yeah. in particular is the one that's described as being like incredibly lavish and kind of like um uh I don't know a hive of scum and villainy yeah. beset by um <laughs> Uh, debauchery and <laughs> what have you, I don't know. Um, alongside the mass slaughter, of course. Yeah, well, other than that, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I guess, yeah, so Galliano is pouring this sort of, like, moral scorn upon the Spanish for not being sufficiently capitalist, because if you adopt a certain interpretation, they've accumulated a lot of capital, they ought to suddenly behave like capitalists. Do capitalism. Do capitalism. Yeah. Um, but of course, like Meekson's Wood Wood's interpretation of the imperialism that was conducted by the Spanish and the Portuguese in South America, at, at, at least in those early centuries, right, at some point it became um, governed by capitalist social relations. Mm. But for those early centuries of the, that period of imperialism, that was purely feudal imperialism. Yeah. It was imperialism that was governed by the realities of feudal social relations and not by capitalist ones. And that's why, like, it was incredibly... There was no, like... Re- in South America, there was no reinvestment. Mm. There was no development of local production of any sort. It was just extraction. Nor it in was Spain. Nor, and quite, the, mm. the argument that he makes is, like, nor was that used to develop um, Spanish industry and production of any sort. Mm. Really what it did was saw this mass it went to fund to funding this massive expansion of the aristocracy there were so many more like um aristocratic positions of various sorts that came into existence so much spending went on lavish palaces or what have you um and beyond and basically the the inputs the 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 proceeds of imperialism in south america by the Spanish went mostly to servicing the debt that they'd already accumulated. They just basically serviced all the mortgages that they had to um, bankers in Germany and mm. the Netherlands and and to late later on England. Um, and also, it went to uh, funding the sort of religious wars that were taking place in uh, the Holy Roman Empire uh, at the same at the same time. Mm. Right? It meant to basically like. Funnel, funding the wars of um, ch- 
Charles V and Philip II and the sort of ho- the various Holy Roman Empire yeah. emperors and their sort of like wars of conflict. Um, which again, if we look back to Meeksin's Wood description of the um, extra economic exploitation that was central to feudalism, war and the expanding the expansion of territory was very central to that form mm-hmm. and that mode of production kind of thing. Um, yeah, can I can I just please, yeah. just to say I think um, I'll push back a bit because we never yeah, I think do we, that. Yeah, yeah, I think we, we we've identified some disagreement. With yeah, well, I think, I think I think we'll find some. I think we still agree. Yeah, <laughs> I'll say that, but I th- <laughs> I didn't read this very much as as being contradictory to what Ella Mason's Wood was saying. I didn't see either of them. This as being in conflict to what she was saying. And I mean, I think he, what he's clearly lacking here is what you're saying, right? Is an explanation for how these social relations came about and how they actually changed. But I think kind of what he's saying, because he's focusing so much on Latin America, is like, let me go back a bit. If, when you want to talk about like the origin of capitalism, it is, it is really easy to just point to like a very specific time that we got an Ella Meeksons Wood book and be like, here's when the social relations changed. Look at all these idiot peasants wandering around Kent with nothing to do. They're wage labor scum, right? Um, <laughs> forging, forging all of these 20th century rights of way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. God bless them. Um, but you can also kind of look back and be like, well, when did like, you know, things kind of start to move in that direction before that. You could go back as far as, like, the Black Death, because that killed a lot of people. Mm. And so there, like, a new class began to form, but didn't actually get into play until, you know, the 17th century in England, right? So I think it's kind of something similar, what Galliano is saying here. He isn't necessarily saying that capitalism came about because of all... Well, okay, he kind of is. But he he shouldn't be read as saying that capitalism solely came about because of all of the wealth just these like ludic- this ludicrous amount of wealth that was taken from. Like I think he says at some point that, can... yeah, there was like a point where I think the amount of wealth that was coming in was like three times the total wealth that was in all of Europe. Yeah. Just like all at once or something. I've written down between 1503 and 1660, 185,000 kilograms of gold <laughs> and wait for it. 16 million kilograms of silver. Jesus Christ. Yeah. How many boats did that take? Which, which as you say, was like three or four times the reserve of... All gold, of Europe. The, yeah, yeah all just, of Europe. It, so, yeah. So I think really what this should be read as saying, and I'm, I will hesitate to say that this is what he's saying because I think this is what we should use the ideas in this book to come to the conclusion about, is that this was an, a, another step in the development of capitalism that didn't have much to do with the social relations concretely, but that bolstered the entire system and made its uh, global reach possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I suppose that, like, you can kind of see this as, like, a steroid, if we're going to use a metaphor, right? It's like this influx of capital that was, like, really connivingly and sneakily used by the British um, really made the social relations that they had previously kind of begun to develop... It just it just gave it a kick in the butt, yeah. right? Like it just really put everything forward. Um, and I think that that is kind of, I suppose, what he's saying here. But because he's talking about all of that from the vantage point of Latin America, he is naturally going to focus on the wealth that was taken from Latin America in the development of capitalism. And while he is clearly missing some kind of like sociological approach of like, 
this is what you're saying. It's like, well, you can't just have a moral argument. Like, why were the Spanish so stupid? Why did the church just keep its money? Why did the Spaniards just build big-ass houses and that's it and then sit on their money while the English were like, oh, let's, you know, save some for a rainy day if we ever have to fight Napoleon, which is there's, fucking crazy. There's this, this point when he's talking about one of the Spanish kings, like, expelling all of these weavers <laughs> who then went over. Uh, the British were like, yes, yeah, come in. Come, <laughs> yes, yes, come to us and weave. Um, yes, because I, yeah. Just to say, to sum it up, I think exactly what you're saying, so maybe we don't disagree at all, but the, um, yeah, this should not be read as an explanation for how capitalism came about, but perhaps how imperial, how much of a role imperialism and the wealth that continues to be extracted from Latin America and other places, much like it, contribute to the development of capitalism, to its a necessity of capitalism, and how... Perhaps what exactly just what I just said that it shouldn't be a moral argument for mm-hmm. why did these dumbass Spaniards do this and why did the English do that? It was because these social relations existed in England yeah. and not in Spain. Yeah, I think what I guess what Galeano wants to say is that it was the exploitation. The maybe <laughs> exploitation feels like too light a word. Yeah. yeah, like the gross levels of extraction of wealth from South America that made European capitalism possible. Mm. And in some ways, maybe what he is saying or what it's what you can read him as implying is that it caused it. Mm. And if we if we want to hold to the Ellen Meeks's Wood Brenner idea of like capitalism coming about as a change of social relations in England, then obviously yeah. we can't agree that it caused it. But I guess we could say that it contributed so heavily that it made it possible. Sure, that's in yeah. in the in the in the. In the 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 rapid expansion of it or its growth or uh obviously like accumulation of capital doesn't automatically mean capitalism sure but it does help to have big pots of wealth sitting around to invest if you decide to suddenly start behaving in capitalist ways right Mm -hmm. so it didn't cause it but perhaps it was indispensable for at least the historic development of capitalism that we experienced as our actual history. Yeah, indispensable or perhaps um, like a bit of a fait accompli, <laughs> which is funny because we just spent the whole first half of this episode pushing back on that. But it's like once these capitalist relations existed, perhaps it was only a matter of time if they were able to st- stabilize themselves in their own, what was then a nation, right? Um, that they would spread mm-hmm. and be so exploitative. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what's, what's again, I'm just going to come back to this idea quickly. It's so interesting about this book is that he kind of just goes yeah, this helped so much with the development of capitalism, but, like, this exploitation was going on long before capitalism and continues yeah. to go on, which is, like, oh, that yeah. sucks. <laughs> yeah, I like... think that's the other thing that we want to, like, emphasize about this. And what's interesting about this, an example of, like, a continuity amidst the change, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. was this shift that was happening in the social relations of the economic mode of production through this period of time, but... The, the utter horror of feudal imperialism mm. is basically the same as the horror of capitalist imperialism. Mm. I don't know, maybe the capitalist one is worse, but like sure. we're, More stable. We're, we're, we're dealing with such grotesquely large numbers. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's beyond quantifying, isn't yeah. it? So let's just say it's the same for the sake of argument that like yeah. there, is a, there is a grotesque human continuity that cuts right through any sort of academic discussion of like uh, changing modes of production kind of thing. 
yeah. which is the thing that should be focused on, I suppose, at least when reading this book and is what's meant to be brought to the fore yeah. is the continuity. Yeah, because you would imagine, right, that like, you would imagine the feudal one would be worse where it's political uh, exploitation or just violent exploitation, like militaristic exploitation, mm-hmm. where it's just like he talks about how, you know, a bunch of people would just go into the woods, find a bunch of natives, round them up, put them in a cattle pen and just be like, okay, you guys are today going into the mine. You guys are going into today in the mine. But it's like, okay, you would expect perhaps an extra economic or an economic form of exploitation to be maybe better. Mm-hmm. But he gives examples and he's like, it's not. Because it's like in Guatemala, there are, you know, one thing he also says is that, you know, natives have been pushed to like the worst parts of the countries, to the arid mountains, to the deserts, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, parts of the year when it's harvest time or whatever, these people come down and they work for like pennies and then they all have to go back. And it's like a lot of them die because of horrible conditions and stuff. So it's like, which one's worse? I mean, the capital capitalism is obviously on a much larger scale. So it's like, who fucking cares what's worse? It's like, this is what we've got, I guess. So yeah, brutal. <laughs> Um, just to sum that up, I really like the Engels quote that we get. Ah, page just fell out. Oh no, I was hoping (laughs) that wouldn't happen. Oh dear. Um, he says, Latin American silver and gold, as Engels put it, penetrated like a corrosive acid through all of the pores of Europe's moribund feudal society. Mm -hmm. Eyebrow raised there. (laughs) And for the benefit of the nascent mercantilist capitalism there we go the mining entrepreneurs turned the indians and black slaves into a teeming external proletariat of the european economy greco-roman slavery was revived in a different world to the plight of the indians and the exterminated latin american civilizations uh was added the ghastly fate of the blacks seized from african villages to toil in brazil and the antilles the colonial latin american economy enjoyed the most highly concentrated labor force uh, known until that time, making possible the greatest concentration of wealth ever enjoyed by any civilization in world history. Um, and so, yeah, I guess if you read that as just like, a, well, they got a lot of money and did the primitive accumulation and then capitalism came about, you know, why didn't like Alexander the Great pillaging everything east of the Bosphorus to India, bringing all that back? Why didn't they just do capitalism back then? Mm-hmm. Um, which actually brings up. <laughs> what about your roots? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Idiots. Fools. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's very interesting. I suppose all I'm trying to say with that is that I don't think that Ellen Meekson's would and what I would like to read this as saying are mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. but perhaps maybe they are. I don't know. I don't know whether it matters. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does any of this matter? I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. One thing we haven't really talked about was the just like the pure size of all of these uh, cities and civilizations. And I mean, I, I don't know. There isn't, there isn't a whole lot left to discuss in this chapter, but I think... it would be worthwhile to just pause on this for a moment because again you imagine like the aztecs is having like hey the one city with the pyramids and that's basically it or you know the inca okay they lived in the mountains how many people could there have been and he basically says like an incan civilization he's given high estimates he's giving like 70 million people lived here yeah, was it 70 because I, i've written down the wrong number <laughs> i think i think i wrote down 17 but i feel like it ought to be 70, uh, 70. where it's like the population prior to 1492 is like 70 million yeah. And like by 1650, it's down to like 3.5 or something. I put an million. exclamation point next to this sentence. The Aztec capital Tenochtitlan was five times larger than Madrid and had double the population of Seville, Spain's largest city. And in Peru, Pizarro met an army of 100,000 yeah. people. That would have been a massive European city. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, just yeah, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. And when when he does go on to detail like the the engineering feats... Mm. of these civilizations yeah. 
Um, the I didn't quite understand what was being described. Maybe maybe you understood it better. The the efforts that were made to basically create Mexico City. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah so Tenochtitlan, so awesome. It was a swamp basically, yeah, yeah. and I mean the story is that like the people who founded it. They were like, we're going to wait until we see, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's like until we see an eagle eating a snake on a cactus or something like that. And then they're like, okay, I don't know <laughs> about like that. Sounds like Western propaganda to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then anyway, they settled on this place and it was a swamp and they were like, how the hell are we going to build a city here? And they're like, we're the Aztecs, baby. We can do whatever the hell we want. And they did. They basically just, they literally built drained island. the swamp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just... <laughs> um, and like planted trees yeah, to stabilize like, the mud. So, yeah, so basically like, like brought in a lot of mud from somewhere else and built these islands. And yeah, then, and just drained it. And drained and, it into these reservoirs, like lakes around yeah. these artificial islands. And they, yeah, 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 yeah It's yeah. badass. When you see reconstructions, what it looked like, it is just like this beautiful like Atlantean city with like a pyramid and like, you know, these like lakes. And they're all, it's just awesome. It just yeah. kicks ass. And it was huge too. It was a massive city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I was imagining as it was described, almost like Disney, yeah, like actually, yeah, like depictions of yeah. these cities. But really, maybe that's what they were like, kind of just with a hell of a lot more just people, grandeur, yeah, and obviously their size and their scale. Um, yeah, I mean, and 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 um, the sort of like incredible feats of agriculture that went to supporting these uh, cities in these vast populations. Um, and lives and lifestyles and forms of work and living that these people were ripped away from. Yeah. Uh, this sort of like the civilizations and the ways of living were just utterly decimated. Yeah. As we've already depicted. Well, like, and, and just in a really like gnarly way, because, you know, I think a lot of the irrigation and the agricultural techniques, as you're saying, that, that a lot of these people were putting into place were like pretty unfathomable to uh europeans especially when you consider these people didn't have like the plow or like use the wheel very much that's mm -hmm. just like wait a minute how the hell do these people do it i think at one point he said that some english asshole was like or somebody humble. was like, it's going on about uh, hum yeah humble he was like oh the, it, in europe it would have cost thirty thousand pounds an acre <laughs> to do this and it's like okay whatever the hell that means but um, i yeah yeah i really hate those when they're sort of like yeah. what would it have cost in I today's know. labor cost to do something like it, yeah. in a different mode of production 500 exactly. years ago <laughs> it's like it's like when you hear communists be like oh consider what the gdp would be like if we could only do socialism it's like yeah wow if only we could get the gdp higher but anyway like uh, yeah obviously there was the disease obviously there's all of this but there was just the complete ruining of these like extremely sophisticated agricultural techniques so that because basically they're just terraforming they were taking yeah. deserts and making them like lush gardens for growing corn and potatoes and tomatoes all of the stuff that you consider to be good european food which actually came from the americas sweet potatoes these people were eating, and they're eating well. And so then, basically, when these assholes kidney came beans, over, isn't it? Kidney, kidney beans and white beans, beans. So, but not the broad bean. Oh, maybe the broad bean. Actually, I don't know. Um, but basically, once the uh, Europeans came over, they just mm -hmm. destroyed intentionally or unintentionally all of these agricultural systems, and that's and again what went led back to, to being deserts again. Exactly, and mm -hmm. just what led to massive population drops again. So when you read these numbers of like, okay, the people who lived in like Western South America could have numbered at seventy million people. How could you possibly how could you possibly kill that many people? It's like, we'll just destroy all their food sources and give them disease and then murder the rest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Work yes. everybody to death. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. As I suppose kind of uh, obviously still continues to be done. Um, we should come back to this book. Mm, absolutely. The 
last chapter, which would be classic us, we read the first <laughs> chapter, chapter. <laughs> is called The Contemporary Structure of Plunder. Um, and it talks uh, contemporary 50 years ago, but contemporary enough to how mm. modern capitalism operates in these places. Yeah. I mean, um, we could just learn, we could read it as a history of the the 70s capitalist exploitation <laughs> of this era this region during the what 50s 60s and 70s yeah which would be um, incredibly enlightening particularly mm. in the context of the devil's chest poetry yeah yeah jesus christ mm. yeah i uh i remember one of the when i when i was a kid i was lucky enough to do traveling with my family and one of the places we went to was japan and we went to hiroshima and i was 10 and it was one of the most uh, disturbing experiences of my life, for obvious reasons. I mean, when you go to Hiroshima, a lot of the original buildings are still left standing. You go to the museum, and it's just uh, hard to deal with, especially if you're 10. But then when I was in high school, uh, some friends, me and some friends, when we were like 15, went to Guatemala. Um, and my friend's grandma picked us up, and we went to Guatemala City. We drove around there for a bit. And it was pretty, like... I don't know, pretty hard to come to terms with, I think, when you're that young, because it was like growing up in California, you have this idea of maybe like a state level of imperialism. And I mean, like in a United States state, because like you go to the Central Valley and it's, you know, it's like feedlots as far as the eye can see, cows stacked on top of each other and farmers whose water was stolen 100 years ago. And basically like all of the towns that uh, Guevara, uh, Cesar Chavez visited and that are very poor and agricultural communities. And you go, okay, this all exists so that like the assholes in LA can have like a quarter pounder and pay like 25 cents. But then I remember when I went to Guatemala City, it was like, you look out as far as you can see and it's just like these cinder block houses with tin roofs. And it's just like, that exists under the current mode of production so that we can have t-shirts that are $5, right? And it's just like, I think I think for a long time, I kind of maybe stayed being a liberal because I was just like, what are you supposed to do? This has to happen because I like the t-shirts that, five, that are five bucks, but it's like, just don't produce for exchange. Just fucking <laughs> produce for utility. And it's just like problem solved. Um, I don't, I don't know if I have too much else to say on that other than just like, uh, it needs to change. And I mean, we have our complaints about our shitty jobs and all of that and it all fucking sucks and whatever, but it's like, uh, stuff like this is important to read because then you go, all right, this is how it really is. This is how, what, this is the re these are the real reasons we need to change things. Not mm -hmm. just cause I hate my nine to five job. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. Uh -huh. And I think it's also important not to do the liberal like guilt trip of people and be like, isn't it so sad? Donate five dollars to the Clef Palette Foundation or whatever. The only way things are <laughs> going to change. Let's go some. Yeah, exactly. No, let's go and sterilize some. <laughs> Donate five dollars to the Gates Foundation. <laughs> Don't you feel bad? Um, the only way that this is going to change is if you realize that your struggles are the same as these people's struggles and they stem from the same place. And while they're not on the same level, perhaps for a lot of you listening to this, um, they stem from the same source. And so as uh, Cliff United would say, yeah, as Cliff would say, as Kropotkin would say, as Che Guevara would perhaps say, um, what are you going to do about it? You're going to be a socialist. So there you go. Amen. Amen. Um, don't know what we're reading next week. It should be good, though. And then the week after, week the big two. stuff. It's going to be banging. It's going to be banging. <laughs> um, good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
Good stuff, good stuff. Um, yeah. Here we, <laughs> Here we are. I guess it's the end. Here we are, folks. The end of another week's episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening. It's been, um, dis- despite, despite the horrors of this reading, it's continued to be our pleasure. Yeah. Uh, thank you for listening. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Whoa.